0: You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining our Twitter space today. I'm Heather Ashby, Senior Program Officer in the Center for Russia and Europe at the U.S. Institute of Peace. The United States Institute of Peace is a national, nonpartisan, independent institute founded by Congress and dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential for U.S. and global security. I have a few housekeeping notes as we begin. This conversation is being recorded. If you speak, your voice and Twitter handle will be a part of that recording. The recording will be made available for replay on Twitter, and we will also publish it as part of our USIP events podcast series, which is available on our website, usip.org, and on major podcast platforms. We may use the recording on other platforms as well. We will start with a few questions for our speaker, Mona Yacoubian, and then open up for questions from the audience. If you would like to submit a question, please send a direct message to at usip or reply in the thread we will be moderating speaker access to keep the conversation flowing so asking questions via dm or reply is the best way to get involved in the in the discussion our hashtag is syria usip so feel free to use that during the conversation or after so let's get started uh we are joined today by mona yakubian Uh, This space represents an ongoing series on understanding Russia's role in conflicts, how that impacts peace and security and what role the international community can play in supporting civil society and government impacted by those conflicts. Uh, Mona Yacoubian joined the U.S. Institute of Peace after serving as Deputy Assistant Administrator in the Middle East Bureau at USAID from 2014 to 2017, where she had responsibility for Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. Mona Yacoubian's work centers on conflict analysis and prevention in the Middle East, with a specific focus on Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq. Additional research interests include Russia's role in the Middle East, violent extremism, and fragility. Mona also serves as senior advisor to the executive office here at USIP, focused on strategic communications and planning. In 2019, she served as executive director of the congressionally appointed Syria Study Group, which USIP was mandated to facilitate. Prior to joining USAID, Mona was a senior advisor at the Stimson Center, focusing on the Arab uprisings with an emphasis on Syria. Prior to joining the Stimson Center, she served as a special advisor on the Middle East at the U.S. Institute of Peace, where her work, work focused on Lebanon, Syria, as well as broader issues related to democratization in the Arab world. From 1990 to 1998, Mona served as the North Africa analyst in the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research. I'm incredibly excited to speak with Mona Yacoubian today to understand what has taken place in Syria and Russia's role in the conflict. Uh, And so we'll dive right into questions with Mona. And I can't like understate how wonderful it is to have her with us today. So first question for Mona. The Syrian conflict has continued for a little over a decade. Can you describe where the conflict currently stands?
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Heather, for inviting me to join you on this uh, Twitter Spaces event. I'm really excited to be here. So the conflict in Syria has, since really March of uh, 2020, I'd say, settled into a protracted stalemate meaning we've seen, we're seeing far lower levels of violence than we have seen in the past. So we don't see large-scale uh, offensives. We aren't seeing large-scale displacement of people. That being said, it's still very much a conflict plagued by instability. And in fact, as recently as yesterday, uh, the Russians, uh, together with the Assad regime, undertook airstrikes against uh, an internally displaced person's camp in Northwest Syria. So there are continued uh, incidents of violence and instability across the country. It's also, I think, important to note um, that the country is uh, under, uh, is undergoing the worst humanitarian crisis since the onset of the conflict. You've got uh, growing uh, rates of impoverishment, food insecurity. The country is contending uh, with a cholera outbreak. Um, And so it it very much is is in a place where uh, there's still, sadly, quite a lot of suffering uh, for the Syrian people.
1: Thank you, Mona, for that broad overview of what's currently taking place in Syria. For those who may not be familiar with the history, could you briefly explain why and how Russia became involved in Syria and what impact did or is Russia having on the conflict?
0: Sure. So Russia intervened in Syria in the fall of 2015. At that time, the Assad regime had come under increasing uh, threat by uh, armed uh, Islamist groups seeking to overthrow the regime. And the Russians opted uh, to get involved when they thought that Assad was really threatened uh, by uh, regime change, by by the, the Assad regime was on the verge of collapse. And so we saw the Russians come in in fairly dramatic fashion uh, that fall, uh, bringing in massive air power. Uh, and then they worked together with Iranian-backed militias on the ground. Um, and through that intervention, they were really able to essentially save the Assad regime from collapse. And then over the intervening years, through massive massive airstrikes, uh, uh, clawback territory that had uh, fallen out of the Assad regime's control. Uh, And so that's where we are today, where the the regime has taken back a good portion of the country, although not all of it. Uh, There's the northern part of Syria that is under Turkish control, and the eastern part of the country, which is under Kurdish control in partnership, actually, with U.S. forces on the ground.
1: All right. Thank you, Mona, for that information. Uh, As a reminder to our listeners, please feel free to DM at USIP with your questions over the course of this conversation. Uh, Mona, how has Russia's role in Syria evolved? You touched on it a bit, but could you describe it more and elaborate?
0: Yeah, sure. So again, the Russians came in with some fairly significant air power. Um, and their role was very much uh, military. They uh, undertook practices in Syria that, unfortunately, we are also seeing today in Ukraine, which is uh, indiscriminate targeting of civilians, uh, inciting terror among civilians, uh, besiegement tactics in which, uh, people are people were not able to receive humanitarian assistance. This kind of brutal affair did result in, as I said, The Assad regime being able to um, regain uh, significant amounts of territory. Um, At this point, and again, I'd say starting sort of in 2018, 2019, um, and certainly by 2020, uh, Russia's role in Syria started to pivot. Once they realized, they came to the conclusion that the conflict was at a stalemate, that they had regained about as much territory as they could, They started to pivot toward a strategy of seeking uh, more political acceptance for Syria, especially in the region amongst other Arab states. And they have tried, although not successfully, to attract uh, reconstruction funding back into Syria. Um, I should also say um, the Russians have also uh, been able to uh, sort of mediate a relationship with Turkey, one of the other key powerholder power stakeholders on the ground in Syria, and Russia has, uh, through its policies of uh, sort of working through Turkey, not only been able to, uh, you know, come to some sort of an agreement with the Turks regarding their disposition in Syria, but they've also done some amount of uh, working to, uh, in a sense, drive a wedge. NATO, given of course that Turkey is a NATO member. Um, And so Russia has really pursued several different uh, agendas in Syria, not just related to uh, propping up the Assad regime, but also to projecting power in the Middle East and also seeking to drive a wish between Turkey
1: and other members of the alliance. All right, thank you, Mona. We'll definitely come back to a few points you raised in that question uh, over the course of this conversation. Uh, before following up on that, I just wanted to ask you: How is the war in Ukraine impacting the conflict in Syria? Is the war in Ukraine changing the level of Russia's involvement?
0: Well, we're seeing different impacts of the war in Ukraine on Syria. Um, first, we should—I you know, should step back and underscore that Syria is perhaps one of the most complex conflicts in the world. There are no fewer than four international militaries engaged in Syria in different ways. As I mentioned, Turkey, the United States of course, Russia, Iran and Israel. And so um, the war in Ukraine, in a way, I think has shifted some of those power dynamics, the driver being the extent to which Russia has turned its attention a bit away from Syria and focused more on the conflict in Ukraine. Um, That has led to some shifts in the power dynamics among these various uh, international uh, uh, stakeholders in the Syrian conflict. Um, we're also seeing that as Russia over time has now pulled so the Wagner mercenaries who were operating on in Syria and sent them to Ukraine, we're seeing Russia's ability to control parts of Syria, particularly in the South diminished somewhat. And so as a result, we're seeing, for example, that Iran is taking advantage of areas in which the Russians have pulled back. Um, we're also seeing, uh, in an already complex situation, more complexity being interjected, where uh, there are growing, there have been growing tensions over the past several months between Russia and Israel. Russia and Israel had had sort of understanding, the Russia allowing uh, the Israelis to operate in a sense at will to target Iranian elements um, in Syria. That understanding has broken down somewhat as tensions between Russia and Israel have grown, with Russia voicing displeasure over Israel's policies on Ukraine. And so we've seen interesting tensions there. And then of course there is the continuing very complicated relationship between Russia and Turkey, where Turkey has carved out a role in, in, to the extent possible as a mediator in the Ukraine. And Russia has worked very hard to keep Turkey on side, to keep Turkey working uh, cooperatively with Russia in Syria, and so we're seeing there as well on the ground inside Syria as Russia seeks to balance these various relationships.
1: All right, thank you for that overview. Uh, In follow-up to this question, Mona, can you explain uh, just a bit on why there are so many countries invested in this conflict in Syria and have their own approach to what they're trying to achieve, as opposed to looking at some other conflicts when you may not have so many other countries involved?
0: Well, I think in some ways, Syria is emblematic of something we've seen over the past several years, which is internationalized civil wars. That's very much the case in Syria. Uh, I think that as the conflict evolved from um, essentially peaceful protests that were then brutally put down by the Assad regime, that then led to an insurgency and an armed uprising. And all of a sudden, particularly given Syria's centrality, in the Middle East, it's really at the heart of the Middle East. Um, with uh, a Western Mediterranean, it borders Turkey, uh, it borders Iraq, it borders Jordan, a key US ally, uh, Lebanon. Um, you saw all of these various uh, regional players become involved um, in different ways. You saw Arab countries uh, supporting uh, some of the opposition forces. Uh, you also, of course, saw most importantly Turkey make a decision to support Syrian opposition forces, and that really dramatically began to shift uh, the dynamics of this conflict. And then, of course, as I noted earlier, Russia became involved. Now you had the great powers getting involved inside Syria. And then, of course, we can't forget uh, the role that ISIS played Uh, starting in 2014. We we could recall ISIS emerging out of the ashes of al-Qaeda in Iraq sweeping across Iraq and Syria, taking advantage of uh, ungoverned territories in Syria, and uh, essentially establishing its so-called caliphate, uh, occupying a third of both Iraq and Syria, uh, an area the size of Great Britain, and declaring its capital in Raqqa, which is is in um, Eastern Syria. And so that then brought, of course, the global coalition to defeat ISIS engaged in uh, pushing ISIS out of uh, of both Iraq and Syria, um, and uh, you can see just as I'm speaking and enumerating the various uh, actors involved, each of them see, feeling that it had stakes in this, you know, very important country in the heart of the Middle East. And so, I think, unfortunately, we see with Syria perhaps a trend that we may end up seeing, and we are seeing to certain way to a certain degree in other conflicts as well.
1: All right, Mona, that explanation leads into my next question is, with so many countries involved in Syria, how have they avoided direct confrontation with each other, particularly perhaps Russia and United States in Syria?
0: Well, I should say there, there have been some, of course, different kinds of, of uh, inadvertent uh, clashes and conflicts among some of the great powers, and, and uh, not even even frankly between the U.S. and Russia, uh, where in 2018 uh, there was a uh, miscommunication, as it was at that time called, and in which Russian mercenary uh, forces, the the Wagner group, uh, came and was approaching uh, a U.S. military base. The U.S. responded after warning the Russians and getting a response uh, with uh, airstrikes on that group of, of Russian military contractors. So we've seen um, various instances uh, in which you know, planes have been shot down, there have been clashes between various countries' forces. However, that said, given the particular sensitivities around the U.S. and Russia, uh, the b- both countries have worked assiduously to try to deconflict, And there are uh, functioning uh, deconfliction channels it's still in operation to this day, governing how uh, the disposition of our forces on the ground and Russian forces on the ground. I think uh, Syria is probably uh, the conflict arena that has both of these forces in closest proximity. And so it underscores the danger and the complexity of that. But we've seen for the most part that these deconfliction channels uh, continue to work well, even with The the high tensions, of course, between the U.S. and Russia, given Russian invasion of Ukraine.
1: Uh, As a reminder to our listeners, please feel free to DM at ID with questions uh, as you think of them over the course of this conversation. And so, my next question, Mona, is USIP has held several events focused on Russia. We have also focused on holding events about holding uh, the Syrian regime accountable for atrocity in the current with the head of the UN's international, impartial, and independent mechanism. And so, that a recording of that event is available on USIP's website. So, how can the U.S. and other countries hold Russia and the Syrian regime accountable for the atrocities committed in Syria?
0: Well, I think the accountability question is, in some ways, the most vexing and painful uh, that uh, uh, accompany the conflict in Syria today. Because, of course, in Syria, we do not have a transition. The Assad regime uh, is still very much in power. Uh, the brutality, the crimes against humanity, the war crimes that this regime has committed, uh, uh, cry out for justice and accountability for the Syrian people. Uh, but while Assad has still been in power, uh, the, the pathways to justice, unfortunately, have been somewhat limited. There is a very rigorous sanctions regime against the, in place against the Assad regime, uh, that's one tool of accountability. But increasingly, we're also seeing work on uh, documenting uh, atrocities and war crimes. And then through the principle of universal justice, we, we have seen, uh, 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 in particular in Germany, instances in which Uh, elements uh, related or people, agents close to the Syrian regime who have been associated with undertaking uh, some of the atrocities and war crimes, systematic torture, etc., have been tried and convicted in Germany for their participation in these war crimes. It perhaps is not the level of accountability and justice that the Syrian people would seek, but I think they offer and it offers an important step forward. And I would really commend to those on this Twitter Spaces event to to go on USIP's website and have a listen to, I think, a really fascinating discussion with the head of the IIIM um, and the US Ambassador uh, for Global Criminal Justice uh, and get a deeper sense of just what kinds of thinking is going into this really vexing challenge of uh, seeking justice for uh, the Syrian people while while this sort of brutal Assad regime remains still in power.
1: All right. As a reminder, please feel free to DM at USIP with your questions. Um, Mona, my next question is quite broad, but I'm sure you receive this quite often, is what are the options to end this conflict, whether it's the international community becoming more involved, such as the United Nations, what conversations could take place in the UN Security Council, particularly uh, in the short term, how to provide humanitarian aid uh, through that established corridor in Syria.
0: Yeah, Heather, it's such a difficult question. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think uh, while the Assad regime remains in, in power, it's it's very difficult to envision an end to the conflict. In particular, we've seen how the UN Security Council has not really been able to play an effective role in Syria, given Russia's role in the Syrian conflict and, of course, its position as a permanent member of the UN Security Council. So the Russians have continually obstructed efforts at uh, pushing for a, a, a transition of power in Syria uh, via means such as the UN Security Council um, or efforts uh, that the UN has undertaken uh, to push for uh, a peace, a peace, a political settlement in Syria. That being said, I do think, as I noted, because of just how dire the humanitarian situation is, it really is important to focus on conflict management, on addressing this humanitarian challenge. And that is where uh, the UN uh, uh, crossing into northwest Syria from Turkey, allowing humanitarian uh, assistance to to uh, reach some nearly 4 million Syrians who live in northwest Syria in, in the governorate of Idlib is crucial. That UN crossing Is only uh, able to continue through the authorization provided it by the UN uh, Security Council, and the authorization is uh, coming to soon will expire in January and will require another UN Security Council vote to renew it. I think this is going to be a critical focus of U.S. diplomacy at the United Nations, uh, working with. Allies and members of the UN Security Council to ensure against a veto by Russia. Uh, The Russians may well be tempted to veto that crossing uh, because of, you know, just frankly out of spite. Uh, But that being said, uh, the crossing is also very important to Turkey. And as I mentioned earlier, Russia continues to prioritize its relationship with Turkey in Syria. And so I think we can be hopeful uh, that rational. Uh, mines and cooler mines prevail and that the UN security that the UN Security Council will be able to renew the authorization uh, for that crossing uh, I think it's also in, important that efforts at documentation of atrocities continue um, and the UN Secretary General recently uh, uh, recommended that a separate standalone mechanism be established to account for the hundreds of thousands of of people who have disappeared in this conflict. So while a final political settlement is not in the offing, I think there are important steps that can be taken, both with respect to the provision of humanitarian assistance, and as well to continue to document uh, crimes that are committed and work for accountability and justice for the Syrian people.
1: All right, as a reminder, please feel free to DM at USIP with your questions. And so right now we'll open it up for questions we receive from the audience. Uh, And the hashtag for this event is SyriaUSIP. Monin, for our first question, in Ukraine and Syria, how do journalists collect information from Russian annex controlled occupied regions? Uh, And I think this builds on your uh, discussion about accountability and the role of various actors in uh, collecting information and documenting what's taking place?
0: Well, so I think it's done in a variety of ways. I think first, uh, and I, can, I really can speak primarily to Syria, which is, which is the country I work on. I think there have been many instances of journalists working with uh, dissidents and others, some very brave who have escaped from Syria uh, and have worked to tell their story. Um, uh, We can think of Caesar, for example, um, uh, a former uh, uh, element uh, employee in the Syrian regime who documented through thousands of photos uh, the torture of Syrian prisoners. And it is his name, Caesar, that was given to the Caesar Sanctions Act passed by the U.S. Congress. These are some of the most significant sanctions, including secondary sanctions on the Assad regime in an effort to uh, achieve accountability. So one is is journalists working hard to work with sources just outside of the country to tell their story. But there are also, as we know, in both Ukraine and Syria, very brave journalists who work on the ground inside the country. A number of journalists have lost their lives covering the Syrian uh, conflict. Um, And there are still journalists who work very carefully and very quietly Uh, from regime-held parts of Syria uh, in order to tell the story of how that conflict is unfolding there. And of course, journalists in other parts of Syria as well. Syrian journalists, of course, among them, um, using various outlets, various social media platforms to document and make sure that the world does not forget this conflict in Syria. I think in many ways, Syria has fallen Uh, back from the headlines, uh, overtaken by other events, of course, the the conflict in Ukraine being among the the top news stories today. But the conflict in Syria continues, and there are a number of of brave journalists who continue to work.
1: All right, Mona, for our next question, uh, could you discuss whether or how Russia has been a hindrance to any type of resolution of the conflict. As you noted, it's very complicated. So at least from Russia's involvement, what role have they served in hindering any type of discussions internally between different factions within Syria?
0: I'm sorry, Heather, I lost
1: the first part of your question. Could you just repeat it for me? Uh, Yes, no problem. Uh, So in talking about Russia's role in the conflict, what role have they played possibly in hindering any type of peace discussions between different factions within the conflict, at least for Russia's position in the conflict, knowing that there are other countries involved as well?
0: Well, again, Russia has uh, has not really cooperated very much with the UN special envoy for Syria, which is the primary locus of efforts to bring about a political settlement to the conflict. One of the primary uh, venues for that uh, those efforts at bringing about a political settlement uh, is what's called the establishment of a constitutional committee, which was designed to uh, uh, basically bring together uh, government elements, opposition elements, and civil society together in an effort to work on reforming the Syrian constitution. Uh, The Russians have essentially very recently done the bidding of the Assad regime by uh, pulling out, uh, by having the the, the Syrian regime is pulled out from those discussions, essentially stymieing What had been already a fairly, um, you know, very slow, let's say, effort at at political settlement. So we see Russia uh, not playing a constructive role and indeed more recently actually obstructing U.N. efforts to begin to try to broker uh, a political settlement for the conflict in Syria.
1: All right. As a reminder to our listeners, please feel free to DM at USIP with your questions Uh, We're definitely open to hearing from your perspectives or comments about what you're interested in discussing. Uh, We have another question that just came in. Uh, Mona, how would you compare scale of Russia's military involvement in Ukraine and Syria? What's Russia's continued geopolitical interest in Syria today?
0: Well, I think in Syria, of course, Russia does not have the same level of uh, uh, ground troops, ground forces as they do in Ukraine, which is a much, much larger uh, military intervention. Um, But Russia did bring to bear very significant air power in Syria. And as I said, I think honed many of the practices uh, that we are seeing them use today in uh, Ukraine in Syria. As I said, things like uh, indiscriminate targeting uh, of civilian areas, targeting critical infrastructure, just like we're seeing today in Ukraine, uh, besieging areas, ensuring that those in opposition aren't able to receive uh, adequate humanitarian assistance, uh, weaponizing displacement, all of these practices are exactly the types of practices that Russia has undertaken in Syria. I think Russia still, even though, of course, it is, it's, its focus now is on Ukraine, I think Russia still invests quite a bit of geostrategic importance in Syria. Uh, Russia, first, sought to intervene in Syria to prevent regime change in Syria. This is uh, in the wake of the Arab uprisings. Second, it has a long-standing relationship with Syria. Uh, that goes back decades uh, as the Soviet Union. It wanted to maintain and deepen that. It now has both a naval base in Syria, in Tartus, and an air base in Syria as well. And I think it has viewed Syria as the place from which it will project its influence across the Middle East. Uh, In many ways, in discussions I've had with Russian analysts and counterparts, they talk about Syria uh, as, th- in their words, the first post-Soviet success that Russia went into Syria and was able to accomplish, in their view, its strategic goals. Uh, they believe that Syria is part of what they would call it's Russia's uh, imprint in the region, I- in what they call a multipolar world, and that Syria uh, is a place where Russia can uh, w- you know use as a launch pad for its influence, both uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean and also toward uh, the Arab Gulf.
1: All right, Mona, just one final question before we close out the Twitter space. Uh, could you discuss how other countries in the region are perceiving Russia? Do they see it as the success, as you just described, or is it more complex?
0: That's a great question, and and I think it's more complex and it is evolving in part uh, with the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, I think that there are many countries uh, that were supportive of the opposition in Syria and therefore very kind of uh, turned off by Russia's role in the Syrian conflict. Over time, though, as more countries have in the region have made peace with Assad staying in power, you are seeing a trend toward normalization with the Assad regime and therefore by extension with Russia. Now the conflict in Ukraine has introduced, I think, a new wrinkle in all of this, where I think the sense in the region, in the Arab world, is that there is a desire not to be drawn in to the conflict in Ukraine, not to be forced to take sides with either the West or Russia. And so I think there are efforts in the region uh, to sort of remain to the extent that they can neutral. We are also seeing the complexity of the energy relationships that Russia has, um, and in particular the recent decision by OPEC+, which of course Russia is a member of, uh, to uh, uh, minimize or diminish uh, oil production, despite uh, the wishes of the United States and the West that that uh, oil production be increased, um, it's these kinds of decisions I think that are going to bear watching, and that 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 I think demonstrate the complexity of how the Arab world views Russia, how the Arab world is positioning itself um, with respect to the conflict in Ukraine. Unfortunately, it's not. A, I don't think it's a clear. Uh, a win for the U.S. I think it's one in which uh, there's really um, shades of nuance and and an effort by the region to the extent that it can uh, to remain neutral.
1: All right. Thank you so much, Mona, for participating in the Twitter space today. Uh, And thank you for everyone who joined us. We'd like to extend a special thanks again to Mona for her time and thoughtful comments. The recording will be available here on USIP's Twitter account for 30 days, and we'll also be publishing a permanent recording on our website and as an episode of the events at USIP podcast. Find more coverage of this war and the global implications of the war in Ukraine on USIP's website. Uh, Keep checking out our website for articles by uh, Mona, as well as other experts here at USIP. Uh, and you can follow Mona on Twitter at M Yakubian, and you can also follow me at Dr. Heather Ashby. Uh, and once again, please continue to tune in to USIP's events page for more information on how... We are analyzing and understanding the implication of the Ukraine war for other conflicts and the way other conflicts are taking shape by their own internal and international dynamics. Thank you to everyone who listened, and especially thank you, Mona, again, for taking the time to speak with us today. This was wonderful.
0: Thank you so much, Heather. It's been a real pleasure. I appreciate it, and appreciate our Twitter audience as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event.